Seven Grains of Paradise, a culinary journey in Africa. I guess it could be culinary, but uh, and it's by Joan Baxter, uh, uh, a woman who has spent a long time in Africa. She uh, she lived in uh, probably the last three decades. She spent uh, the better part of all those years, uh, just as uh, as an intro. Uh, she describes herself as the author of this book uh, and, um, and uh, calls herself an investigative journalist, researcher, and writer on international development. She was formerly reporting for BBC World Service, among other media, and she spent more than three decades living and working in Africa. She served on the board of USC Canada, which is formerly long time ago the Unitarian Service Committee, but they don't use the name anymore, so it's just USC, which works with smallholder farmers around the world, and I'm a senior research fellow with the Oakland Institute. Much of my writing focuses on how neoliberal economic policies and extractive industries affect agriculture, food systems, human health, rural communities, and the environment. Now, this book came to our attention by way of our old, old friend, uh, Tana Juicy, who's in uh, Cape Town right now. Uh, Tana uh, uh, alerted us this, about this, alerted us to the uh, uh, publication of this book back in May. It had just come off the presses back in May last uh, last year. And, uh, and uh, I immediately got a copy because anything that has to do with food, I'm very interested in. And it turns out to be way, way, way more exciting than I had ever thought. Then, out of the blue, my old buddy, Jock Mackay. Are you on the phone there, Jock? Yes, I am. Hey, Jock. Welcome. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Have you got some lights back there in the Maritimes? <laughs> the power is out for a few hours here today. I had to get my generator going. Oh, there you go. Well, look, the, 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 the whole point of, of connecting Jock and me and Joan Baxter in this book is that uh, Joan herself is a Maritimer from Nova Scotia. And, and, and Jock, I got this book from Africa, and that's my connection. How the heck does a guy living in, in uh, Pictou County, uh, Nova Scotia, come across Seven Grains of Paradise by Joan Baxter? <laughs> well, I, I always cruise the community events and the you know, th- uh, upcoming things to go to around Pictou County, Nova Scotia, and I noticed this, this, uh, this ad for a, a launch of the book by Joan Baxter, in in uh, River John, which is less than an hour from where I live, a little community on the shore, at uh, Mabel Murple's Bookshop and, and Dreamery. Run Can by, you say that by, again? By writer Sherry Fitch. Say that and again. Are you cold. sober? <laughs> <laughs> Mabel? <laughs> uh, and so I went out of the blue and, and, uh, because it just looked interesting and uh, was was quite taken altogether. Uh, by by the book and by her presentation about the book. Turns out she was a good friend for years with the uh, the owner of the bookshop and is living in the area again these days. And, and I actually re- had read other things by her, though I didn't know it at the time. Well, that's really cool. So did you, you, so you picked up a copy of the book? Mm-hmm, yeah. And now, uh, I, I'm, I'm just just to, to brief the listeners. I, I'm, I mean, you're you're a folklorist. You, your background is in uh, ethnomusicology. You've written about uh, country music and 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 uh, country and folk singers uh, from your own area. Uh, wh- what's your background in Africa, Jock? <laughs> Zilch. <laughs> okay, so what Not about this book? How <laughs> how does it come across to a guy who doesn't who doesn't have a background in Africa? Uh, not really at all. I, 
I mean, I, I, I take an abiding interest in, in uh, you know, development issues altogether, but I have no specific knowledge of Africa whatsoever, no. So what would have sp- you know, spurred from, you to I, buy I, I this book? Do. Pardon me? What would have spurred you to buy this book? Well, it just it looked like it was interesting, you know, put together in, a, in an interesting way, and I was, like I said, really taken by by the the uh, the honesty and and lucidity of of the author, both in the book and in her presentation that evening at the launch. The book is is so clearly written, so well researched, and and addresses such an important topic. I, I learned an awful lot about what has been done to African foodways by multinationals and the World Bank, etc. And, and, and was just astounded at the traditional ways of eating and, and forms of, of, of uh, agriculture, and, and uh, it, it was just overwhelming. Tremendous. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Well, uh, I too bought it, uh, and, and uh, like yourself, I'm, I'm very interested in food. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I... I um, I, I saw that picture on the cover, and I thought I was back in Malawi. I bet, I bet, yeah, yeah. What did you, what did you find that, well, you already mentioned a few things, but what jumped out to you in, as you started through the book? Well, well one, one thing I followed up is that, you know, I, I like rice, eat, eat rice a lot, and, and have kind of ended up eating mostly basmati white rice, and presume that was sort of the... Uh, aside from brown rice now and then, that was about the best I could do. She has a whole chapter on rice, pointing out that the, the western coast, Sierra Leone, especially the northwestern coast or central western coast of Africa, was known as the rice-growing coast. You know, there was the Ivory Coast, the Gold Coast, the Slave Coast, and this was the rice-growing coast. And in fact, slaves were, re- were taken from that particular area to the Americas because of their, their rice-growing knowledge. Oh, Wow. Amazing. And rice that they grew generally, the traditional rice, what's probably called their country rice today, it was a red variety with much higher in vitamin B and protein, much more nutritious. And, and kind of, I was kind of taken by that, so I, I started a quest to find some in Montreal. Oh, yeah? To my, my favorite area to go for finding exotic foods is along Victoria there between Jean Talon and uh, Van Horn. And I went to the place I usually go to and asked for the red rice. And the, the Indian man that runs the store, he and his wife, he, he said, oh, I grew up on us. He patted his belly. He said, there's nothing like red rice. It fills you up. You don't, you're not hungry all day. It's so good, so good. But we don't have any. <laughs> 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 so he sent me to another store. They didn't have it. They said, oh, but our other store probably has it. And so I said, uh, this was in the pouring rain a month or so ago. And, and uh, I ended up finally at a Chinese store that did have the red rice uh, imported from Thailand. And it is. It's it's a it's a wonderful food. Oh, really? <laughs> By munching on it, that is better for you than the white rice. Oh, wow! That's a that's fantastic. And the sad part is that it's basically drummed out of the culture in 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 Sierra Leone and uh, itself, where it came from. In and 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 like so many other foods, uh, they they've imposed uh, tasteless and nutritionless uh, alternatives on top. Yeah, some of some of her stories about about encountering. You know, food in public, especially in restaurants, uh, it was terrible what's happened. You know, the local foods have have been shamed out of, out of existence and economic incentives set up to grow monoc- monoculture uh, foods that Europeans and North Americans 
want them to grow for the marketplace. Uh, and, and they've actually managed to convince much of the local population that they should be ashamed of their own traditional foods. And, 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 and it's, it's a massive uh, publicity campaign. The marketing is just huge. Uh, you're, you're, it, it, it's, it's racist in its, its content, the way you're, it you're, is also, you're, it is. you're underdeveloped and backward if you eat that, that, that poverty food. I the complexity of of preparation it's it's daunting actually I don't know if I would ever want to try it it's like uh, I've always been a bit afraid of trying to to, uh, to to cook Indian as some people I know have uh, but this would be to do it well I'm sure just about as complex she she describes in in great detail she must have have taken copious notes over the years she describes in great detail uh, accompanying a friend usually a woman she knows in the preparation of a meal using traditional ingredients. And the woman is, it's as though she has five hands on the fly all at once, drawing on, on ingredients, some of which have been prepared for days or even weeks in advance to get to exactly the right texture, exactly the right flavor or ripeness, and, and, and prepares a really luscious meal with, you know, using this knowledge. I know, I know, and in fact, uh, there there was one beautiful example where they arrived out of the blue at some establishment where there were uh, civil servants and other people around, and they arrived with all the ingredients, but no, uh, uh, no warning that they were coming, and without even instructions or other long discussions or negotiations everybody just pitched in and before you knew it somebody's cutting and chopping somebody's starting to fire somebody's on the meat somebody's on the veg somebody it's just a an, yeah, an amazing yeah it was lovely but on, by contrast one of the more bothersome stories she tells she and she does she is a great storyteller and, and quite self-deprecating you know she she makes fun of herself at times but this, in this particular one, she doesn't. It's about watermelons. I don't know if you remember this. I do. She was with an international uh, team uh, uh, checking local facilities. I forget exactly the target. Uh, but there was a fairly large group, and no one had planned their meals. So they'd gone through the day in, in the heat and the sun, and they were all getting uh, thirsty and, and hungry, and they couldn't find anything. They went to the market, and the market had just closed. They went somewhere else, and there was nothing left. And finally, uh, Joan herself noticed big piles of watermelons for sale. She thought, oh, good, a nice, nutritious, thirst-quenching fruit. And so she went to get a pile for the group, and she was told by them, no, 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 we can't touch that. We were told before we left the embassy, no fruit or vegetables. And, she, and Joan says, but you don't even eat the skin. You, you cut it open. No, no, we've been told that they might inject them with water to make them heavier so they make more honey. And the water might be infected, therefore we dare not eat them. Oh. They don't sell them by weight anyway, so why would anyone do that? Uh. And so no one ate the watermelon. Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> oh, and that's where watermelons come from, by the way. <laughs> um, guess what? As does coffee. As does the cola nut. For, uh, uh, Coca-Cola is quite thankful for that, I'm sure. Well, and that was one of the things that impressed me with the book. She was, uh, well, two things really impressed me with the book. First was, as you have just said, how she is so humble and so respectful and so personable about the way she writes about the story. She starts, as I recollect, uh, with a, uh, a story of her kids uh, playing with the, the, local, uh, the local children. And uh, when the rainy season started, they... they you know, 
hundreds of them were climbing the trees nearby to pull off the the, the pods and, and gobble up the goodies that were inside. And she was just so shocked that her children would be eating something she had no idea what it looked like, what it was from. You know, it didn't it was it didn't come right. from the grocery store and it wasn't prepackaged and. Including a, a, a pan of uh, crickets or termites, I forget which. They both came up at different times. Yeah, absolutely. And so she, she, she was confronting her own, uh, and she understood this very clearly, confronting her own uh, prejudices and, and in, inbred uh, cultural biases as she was going through this. Uh, and, and, yeah. and, 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 and then when the kids are grown up and they're no longer part of the narrative, uh, it's just the wonderful uh, relationship she established with uh, mostly women, of course. Of course, uh, the, the African tradition is women in the kitchen, but uh, uh, the wonderful uh, relationship she set up with these women and, and uh, just sat with them and watched. In fact, they chased her out of the kitchen, take the knife, took the knife away from her because she wasn't producing, you know? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. So I, I really respected that. And the other thing was I, I was so impressed that uh, she told this in such a, 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 a narrative fashion. It was storytelling, and yet she would sneak in information that was so, so, so important. And and yet, uh, where this would have been tempting to pile up statistics and charts and graphs and all of that kind of stuff, she 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 really just sort of laid them out very very gently to really impact the reader. You know, there were over. Uh, millions of, uh, not millions, thousands of breeds of, of seeds and grains and different kinds of foodstuffs out of Africa, not to mention hundreds of uh, adaptations on the various livestock that African grew to fit their conditions, their circumstances. And then the multinationals come along and impose on them uh, about 15 uh, major foods that they want to grow. Yeah. And the temptation when you see it, that level of injustice and tragedy deriving from food policy, it, it, it must have been tempting for her to be more more preachy, more directly political. But she she avoids that. She just she just lays out the the the, the way it is. And and, uh, and it's it's just, it's just so apparently stupid that you would deprive the world of the riches and the nutrition that the traditional foods offer and take up this uh, tasteless bland uh, offering that the multinationals impose. And less nutritious. Yeah. Way less, way less. The other, uh, anything else? I mean, uh, you, you, did you actually get to meet her while you were uh, at the, the lunch? Well, I was, I, was, I was kind of a gaggle of people hanging around, uh, most of them looking for signings, and I don't usually look for that personally. And so I caught, you know, uh, some ends of conversation, but I didn't get a chance to meet her. There were, there were others lined up. I see. Okay. And, and, uh, and if, if you walked away from this book now, what would be one of the, 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 the biggest lessons you think that everybody should take away from it? Just to, to revel in the, in the variety of traditional foodways. You know, we can find them uh, here in, in our own country as well from Aboriginal peoples. Uh, it, it's astounding to realize that there's such a variety of good food that, that is part of the, of the land and the seasons in which it appears. That come, keeps coming up over and over in the book, how, how outsiders simply don't recognize, for instance, the, the value of the products of a certain tree that goes through an annual cycle and can only survive and be productive in its own climate, which is to say a rainy season and a dry season usually. And we can go into dormancy and still provide wonderfully months later and a short 
short-term view of that, someone who might look at a tree that appears, you know, half dead, wouldn't understand uh, how it really works. And so with so many leafy greens and herbs and roots and, well, in their case, even insects that are part of the uh, of the local ecology. They're just part of what is there and, and uh, survives and thrives in that environment. You know, we, we need to learn more about that ourselves. I mean, eat local, grow local is is beginning to address that issue, but we've got a long way to go. Well, Jock, I, 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 I think you and I are of the same generation, and I think, I know we are of the same generation, and I can remember my father, a prairie boy, uh, who was uh, very much used to uh, um, gathering food and, and cooking it from scratch, going as we were uh, out in the woods and walking through fields, uh, finding puffballs and mushrooms and uh, things that he would bring home for us to eat. And, and uh, that would have been in the 50s after the war, and he was still very rooted in his, his traditional culture. But within 10 years, uh, Reader's Digest would have had how many stories about people dying, eating wild mushrooms. Uh, there, there was a, just such a, a push by uh, commercial uh, agribusiness uh, to, to, to uh, buy processed and prepared and safe and prepackaged foods that uh, we never, ever did that after, uh, I, I, I'm guessing, the mid-60s. It just disappeared from our lifestyle. And you grew up on a farm in Nova Scotia, and I'm sure your own ancestors probably had access to many more varieties of apples than are currently uh, on sale around. Oh, yeah. When I talk about uh, uh, August apples or Duchess, people kind of look at me blankly. And already, just in my lifetime, they hardly exist anymore. Mm. We managed to grow all our own food when I was young, but uh, we were an exception even then, I think. So, with this kind of uh, uh, book, uh, how, how would you see it uh, uh, being promoted from here on? Uh, oh, good question. I mean, it could be used in, in educational programs, uh, probably post-secondary courses, you know, on foodways, etc. Uh, it's so full of detail, it would be a hard thing to, to use in an academic program easily, I think. Uh, but just uh, get people to read it. Well, it's certainly not an academic text. It's not written with the footnotes and all of that kind of stuff that uh, one... Uh, there are endnotes, but they're, they're just references. Right. They're not the usual type. There are and, and they don't interrupt the flow of the reading in any way whatsoever. It's too bad there isn't an index. I really missed that, to look something, to be able to find something quickly. Mm, that, that, too, would, uh, would have been something I'd have really appreciated. Listen, uh, Jock, I, uh, I really appreciate your, uh, your taking a look at this. Uh, I, I want to tell the readers that uh, this uh, interview will be up on the Amanda website in the next week and that I'm also planning to post a, on the same website a, a, a book review that I've done of, uh, of the book. Uh, I, uh, I was very much impressed by the fact that uh, she had spent so much time with ordinary people walking through the fields, sitting in their kitchens, doing it very much the same way I had done when I first went to Africa in the 1960s, 1970s. Uh, I, 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 I was just awed, and it occurred to me uh, back then that should ever the catastrophe occur, the apocalypse, and here we are sitting with Trump and uh, and uh, and his whole uh, thump uh, uh, breast thumping around uh, nuclear war, but if ever the apocalypse occurred, 
it, you know, we are so dependent on what's in the the the, um, the grocery store freezer for our food, uh, and yet uh, the African farmer is so resourceful, so resilient, so capable of bouncing back. They would be way better off than us if ever that should occur. If one were to blow up all the bridges around Montreal, <laughs> oh man, we'd starve to death in a week. Yeah, exactly. We'd run out of food in a week. No, it was it was uh, really quite impressive going through this book and 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 the kind of uh, stuff that she came up with, uh, how how uh, over millennia uh, African farmers uh, first and foremost was the the arrival of maize uh, with the beginning of the transatlantic trade, which included the slave trade, and and within within a couple of hundred years, maize had spread across the continent and been adapted to so many circumstances and uh, modified and, and, and bred by resourceful farmers that these were not poor, starving people, but resourceful farmers who, in fact, produced a surplus at independence in 1950s, or rather the 60s uh, and, and 70s, Malawi, uh, Malawi, Africa, was a net exporter of food, uh, maybe 30% beyond the needs of the, the country. And now today, with the multinationals and their impositions, we're down to, uh, to uh, being uh, de- totally dependent on, on exterior foods. And the traditional foodways of the type she describes develop over thousands of years, typically, so there's a, a refinement and a, a knowledge that goes very, very deep. And people talk about the, uh, the Amazon uh, Delta as, as being especially rich in that respect, but clearly Africa is also for both foods and medicines. Oh, absolutely. And at the other end of the scale, when, when people are, are, are decultured, if people move elsewhere and have to adapt to a new culture and bring only fragments of their own culture with them, one of the very last things to go, folklorists point out, is food waste. Food, people love to retain their foods. Wow, so that's the... the being disrupted in the African case so dramatically. And, 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 and then to, to also be, uh, be depicted as so impoverished and so underdeveloped uh, when in fact it's way more sophisticated and um, fruitful than, uh, than anything we know. So much, yeah. Jock, I want to thank you very, very much for uh, for uh, taking the time to talk with us tonight. I'm so glad you got to read the book. Uh, you and I have known each other so many years, but uh, never really spent a lot of time talking about Africa together. No, and, no I and, won't. <laughs> if if I can if I can recommend anything else to you on Africa, it's another Joan Baxter book called "Dust in Our Eyes: An Unblinkered Look at Africa" that she wrote some ten years before this one. Uh, oh, I've seen. On, online, yes. And, uh, she has also, incidentally, written a book about Northern Pulp here in Pictou County, Nova Scotia. Well, isn't that interested? There she is, bringing, shattering the shibboleths and the myths about Africa, and uh, she gets home to retire, and the next thing you know, she's in trouble. Could you tell us a little bit about that story? Yes, yeah, she, she, she researched and wrote a book on Northern Pulp. It used to be Scott Paper, which has been here in Abercrombie, Pictou County, for about 40 years now. And uh, the affluent that it, it, it gives off, it pours out into Boat Harbor and ultimately into Northumberland Strait are, are just beyond belief. And governments have made you know, feeble attempts to, to resolve it and have them clean up their act, imposing fines as small as last year, $725, I think it was. Oh, for crying in the soup. <laughs> Uh, so she she tells it. I haven't read the book yet. I, I know I know only about it, 
but when she tried to launch it in a local bookstore, there was uh, such a to-do coming emanating from the uh, representatives of the company claiming that she uh, misinterpreted, told lies, and had a book full of rhetoric. Uh, they managed uh, to convince the bookstore that uh, the possibility of violence erupting was high enough that they should cancel the launch, which they did. And then I heard her talking about it, because she was interviewed on national radio about it, and she said she'd lived 30 years or more in Africa under uh, military dictatorships and uh, any number of uh, autocracies and whatever, and, and never had she faced that kind of censorship and that kind of uh, uh, the confrontation with the brute power of uh, multinational capital. She was quite taken aback by the, by the, the brute suppression, yes. And if anything, uh, probably uh, <laughs> sold the book far, far, far better than had she just kept quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jock, it's a great pleasure to talk to you. Uh, what, what, you just had a blackout down there? Yes, uh, 30,000 uh, uh, homes were without power this afternoon. You got uh, there some... was a, a, a power uh, transformer blew up in Trenton, just uh, 10 miles away. You, uh, you guys got weather going on that we don't have? Well, we, we had uh, about two days of uh, first uh, about 20 centimeters of snow, followed by freezing rain and rain and sleet and uh, for another day or so. Uh, so I don't know whether it was an accumulation of that that led to the... It was an explosion, I heard on the radio, of, the, of a transformer. So I don't know whether it was weather-related or not. Well, Jock, i got to thank you, because we, as a show on public radio, are supposed to announce the weather occasionally, and you've just given us the weather for Nova Scotia. So <laughs> <laughs> I just keep saying we're supposed to announce weather, and yes, here's weather outside. <laughs> Good night, sir, and thank you so much. Good night to you, Doug. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.